Welcome to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And today on By Any Means Necessary, we are marking the anniversary of the fascist march on Charlottesville, Virginia. Also going to be having an update on the case of journalist Julian Assange and going to be discussing the impact of think tanks on the media and American politics. And as always, at 3.20 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, we'll be taking your calls. But before we can move on, Jackie, tell them what's on your mind. Well, today, the new census data is being released that will show which counties, cities, and neighborhoods gained or lost the most people in the 2020 census. And this data will serve as the basis for redrawing 429 U.S. House districts in 44 states and 7,383 state legislative districts across the United States. I don't think most people really understand that this is the ultimate political purpose of the census. Oh, yeah, every 10 years, we're told that the census will help communities by determining how hundreds of billions of dollars in federal funding, including grants and support to the states and counties and communities, are spent every year until the next census. The U.S. Census Department claims that the census helps communities get its fair share for schools, hospitals, roads, and public works. Well, that's a lie. (laughs) What the census really does is help politicians decide how to redraw voting districts. They look at the census to see how many people are in each district and who those people are, and it helps them to draw new voting district boundaries to divide and combine voters in ways that make it more likely for their party's candidates to win future elections. Now, that's called gerrymandering. And people are under the mistaken impression that gerrymandering in and of itself is illegal, but it is not. Racial gerrymandering is illegal. The U.S. Supreme Court ruled in Miller v. Johnson in 1995 that redistricting that is purposely devised based on race is a violation of voters' constitutional rights. But in 2019, the U.S. Supreme Court ruled that federal courts have no authority to decide cases claiming that Partisan gerrymandering, which is gerrymandering on the basis of political party affiliation alone of legislative districts, violates the Constitution. So there are a few things we need to really understand about the census and voting. First of all, the U.S. Constitution requires each state's representation in the U.S. House be adjusted based on the U.S. Census every 10 years. The Constitution also requires that each district have about the same number of people. The Federal Voting Rights Act additionally requires that district boundaries allow minority voters an equal opportunity to elect representatives of their choice. Don't laugh. That's what the Voting Rights Act says. Some states have, of course, adopted additional criteria such as requiring districts to encompass compact, contiguous areas or to keep counties, cities and communities of interest together whenever possible. And you know this opens the door to all kinds of legally messy interpretations of what communities of interest means. But these are the rules for how redistricting is supposed to happen with each census. Anyway, redistricting, the supposedly benign type of voting boundary redrawing, is supposed to happen every 10 years. 
But gerrymandering, which again is the practice of redrawing voting district boundaries to benefit one political party or another, is not what's supposed to happen. But it is also not illegal, according to the Supreme Court. And do we seriously believe that redistricting wasn't really always a politically motivated practice in the first place? Of course it was. Just as a fascinating aside, if you're wondering where the term gerrymandering came from, the term actually dates back to 1812 when Massachusetts Governor Elbridge Gerry, G-E-R-R-Y, signed a bill redrawing state Senate districts to benefit the Democratic-Republican Party. That was the thing back then. Some thought an oddly shaped district looked like a salamander, and a newspaper illustration dubbed it the gerrymander, and we've been using the term ever since. But a ruling in 2019, the one that went largely ignored by corporate media that said gerrymandering wasn't illegal and the federal courts didn't have any say over, you know, what states did as far as gerrymandering was concerned, because it wasn't paid much attention to in corporate media, most Americans didn't pay any attention to it. But it could absolutely have implications in the results of this census, which could have implications in the 2020 midterms. Because you know what else corporate media largely ignored, or at least didn't connect its importance to voting and political outcomes? Donald Trump's meddling in the 2020 census. The Constitution mandates that everyone be counted in the census. But remember how Trump did everything he could to suppress the count among already hard-to-count communities because, you know, we don't trust the government anyway, including immigrants, people of color, low-income folks, and those in rural areas? Remember how he ended the census count weeks too early? Remember how he tried to put a question about citizenship status on the census and then the U.S. Supreme Court told him to go kick rocks? Well, what Trump and the GOP were trying to do might still work out with this census, because as I always said about Trump, he might not have been intelligent, but he was always slicker than you and me. He was certainly more crafty than most people wanted to give him credit for. So Donald Trump's meddling in the 2020 census might be about to pay off for the Republicans in the midterms, and the Democrats really have no answer for it. What's really wild, though? is that court documents show that the chief of staff to the director of the U.S. Census Bureau, at least she was as of May of this year, Krista Jones, was in direct communication with GOP strategists and operatives as early as 2015 and throughout the Trump administration's tenure, communicating with them about how to shape the census to exclude immigrants and undocumented people. How did this woman, who tried to help the GOP rig the census for racist reasons, keep her job? So the GOP have been planning this takeover of Congress through manipulating the census for years. And here we are, about to wonder what hit us, pointing the finger at Joe Manchin for watering down the voting rights bill. Now, don't get me wrong. Joe Manchin is a monster for doing that and a lot more. But we're missing the bigger picture and the long game that's been played right in our faces the whole time. We always do. And today is the anniversary of the bloody Unite the Right rally in Charlottesville, too. And I don't think that's a coincidence. I don't believe in them. I think it's more than ironic because 
we have to remember that this white supremacy thing is not just something that we have to fight in the streets with neo-Nazis and neo-Confederates and fascists. And it's not something that we win just by toppling monuments to genocidal heroes. We also have to fight white supremacy in every institution that was built on it and expose every agent of white supremacy still working in them. And the Census Bureau is definitely one of those institutions. Follow Luke Mon Nation on Patreon.com slash Luke Mon Nation for lots of great content. And those are today's talking points. And you are listening to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here of Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we're your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. By Any Means Necessary. And we're going to keep the movement moving on, as they say. We're now happy to be joined by Daryl Lamont Jenkins, Executive Director of the One People's Project. Daryl, thanks so much for joining us. Uh, thank you for having me again. Good to be here. Absolutely. And Daryl, uh, today is the fourth anniversary of the Unite the Right rally in Charlottesville, Virginia, which was uh, something that was promoted as a demonstration to save Confederate statues in that city. But in reality, this was sort of the big coming out party for the newly reinvigorated far right movement in the United States that got a real uh, shot in the arm uh, following the rise in presidency of Donald J. Trump. And of course, there was a uh, fascist violence that took place here while uh, uh, police just stood by and watched. Uh, and of course, the tragic death of uh, Heather Heyer and uh, just so much that was happening there. And just you know, from someone who was there and particularly looking at how the movement and I mean sort of the progressive movement writ large and even the the, the far right movement in this country has uh, sort of developed from that point up until today, Daryl. I'm just wondering, uh, what are you thinking and what are you feeling around this time and what do you see as the ongoing significance of remembering what happened in Charlottesville? I think when you talk about Charlottesville and um and how we responded to it. I think that is um, the most defining moment of our development development as we um, as we go forward, whether we were dealing with Trump or any other fascists out there. Because, um, as I said on Twitter today, it was a wake up call. It made people realize that um, there was still a fight to be had. I mean, you know. It's one thing when you see somebody like a Donald Trump become president and and white supremacists are being allowed to basically um, take control openly. I mean, because we hadn't seen that in over maybe 50 years where they will openly say we are white supremacists and we are in control of your lives. It was something that we hadn't seen until Trump became president. But what Charlottesville did was show us just A, how bad it can get, and B, we can fight back and we can win. Because that was the third, this was the third rally that we had in Charlottesville over that course of time. We had two others. We had, um, we had a surprise one that Richard Spencer, the, um, the white supremacist that was um, organizing things at the time, um, he, he had organized one in May, a surprise one, a flash mob. Then the Klan decided to come out on July 8th to protect those statues. And then 
everybody was like all hands on deck to protect Charlottesville on um, August 12th. And after that day, after the deaths, after the violence, after Trump's remarks, people said enough's enough. It's time to fight back against this. Now, we went back to sleep for a little bit, and that's why we got January 6th. But um, I don't think we have fallen asleep enough that we aren't keeping our eyes open on some other things that coming up. I mean, I just came back from um, Nashville, New Hampshire, where the CRT, the, um, the critical race theory um, debates are going on in that school district and the proud boys and some neo-Nazis are coming out in support of parents who want to fight critical race theory. And we're, and the reason why I was up there is because other people up there in um, New Hampshire and across the um, New England are fighting, uh, pushing back against that. And we would not have been able to fight back were it not for Charlottesville. We would not know how to fight back were it not for Charlottesville. I mean, regular people um, thought it was over, but it's not. Yeah, you know, the, the lessons learned from Charlottesville are so, there's so many of them, but but what you just said about regular people fighting back and and how, you know, regular people realize that we could win against these people, it did come at a very high price for Heather Heyer, her family, and the 35 people who were injured. But, you know, Daryl, do you feel like even the way we talked about Charlottesville then and now kind of obscures that high price that was paid in Charlottesville because, you know, we don't, it, it seems to me that we don't talk as much about the violent intentions to kill people that is behind fascism. It's a part of fascism. It's a part of these neo-Nazi organizations, these neo-Confederate organizations. They weren't out there just to protect a statue. They were there to hurt and kill people if they had to in their, you know, protecting whatever ideology they believed in. They had no problem doing that. So do you feel like we have had enough of a conversation about the price that we paid, not just for, you know, engaging in this battle, but the price that we have paid for, I guess, underestimating the violence of these folks uh, leading up to Charlottesville. And do you think that we're still doing that? Yeah, I think we I don't think we've had enough of a discussion. I'll, I'll, I'll be the first to say that. I mean, you had just said they were willing to hurt and kill people if they had to. There was no if they had to. True. <laughs> there was no. They 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 went ahead and did that because that's what they wanted to do. And I think uh, as much as we have been sounding the alarm and making it out and putting it out there, even after Charlottesville, just like before Charlottesville, we still have people who feel that the biggest problem is that we're talking about it in the first place. And they're in the majority, unfortunately. Not as much as the majority as they were before Charlottesville, but they still are out there telling people, defend their freedom of speech. Defend, um, the, or if you don't like what they have to say, the best way to fight hate speech is with more speech. Use that more speech, and they tell you you should just ignore them. Everything that seems to come after Charlottesville has been done to protect them. Take a look at what goes on in Portland, for example. 
They come into Portland from Vancouver, Washington, and fight people. And then the police arrest those that they're fighting. And gives the folks in, gives the Proud Boys, gives the Patriot Prayer folks a pass on whatever it is they're doing. This is this is um part of the um results. This is what comes when you don't have that dialogue, when you don't have that discussion about well, what are we going to do about it? And we've had those discuss- we've had those problems before. Charlottesville was um, basically saying to some folks, to, to a lot of folks out there, that no. We're not going to wait for the discussion. You guys figure it out. We're going to defend Charlottesville. And even when um, Cornell West said that if if Antifa wasn't there, they would have been um, they would have been stopped like cockroaches. And that's an important thing to remember. The um, the Nazis, the neo fascists out there, they know that um, anti fascists and um, basically the whole uh, cross section of society is a huge bulwark against everything that they're trying to do. So now we have these stunts, like fighting against critical race theory, or what they call critical race theory and such. And all we have to do, I think the most important thing to do is, if we're not having the discussion, we're going to have the fight. And that's just the bottom line when it comes to stuff like that. I mean, we can't keep letting this go on. Yeah. And, you know, um, a little earlier, Daryl, you you mentioned uh, the fascist attack on the Capitol on January 6th. And and I'm wondering how you sort of see the trajectory of the far right in the U.S. uh, leading up from Charlottesville up until uh, January 6th of this year. Because if you just look at the the landscape, it's just interesting how different it is, because Trump Mm -hmm. is no longer in office. He he may go for another run. We don't know just yet. Jason Kessler, uh, Richard Spencer, these people are are more or less off the scene. I mean, Matthew Heimbach of the Traditional Workers Party formerly was trying to uh, make a comeback there for a minute. But we're also in a time where we have people like uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene and Lauren Boebert uh, in government. I mean, outright conspiracists that um, occupy seats of government in the United States as a result of Trumpism and as the result of the mainstreaming of a lot of these far right ideas from people like Richard Spencer, who was kind of like the dapper Don uh, of these uh, fascist narratives that the corporate media uh, was all too willing to let him spew. You know what I mean? And of course, within the context also of uh, the uh, rebellion against racism last summer against the racist police killing of George Floyd, it's like, you know, how do you see the sort of common thread through all those things and the fact that these far right elements, at least in my opinion, seem to have uh, taken hold uh, uh, in a whole new way. And, you know, with the fact that we see that Donald Trump clearly still controls the Republican Party, it seems that those politics are still uh, very much at play. Well, I'll go back to what I started all of this off with and remind folks that we know how to fight back. We know who to fight back against. And we have been doing that pretty effectively. And I say this because the way that the neo-fascists in this country respond to that fighting back is particularly curious. After Charlottesville, we came down on them hard, like a hammer, and just cut them off as much as we could, getting them fired from their jobs, disowning them from their families, you know, so on. That caused them to um, basically rebrand. So the 
Proud Boys came into real prominence after Charlottesville because you're talking about a multiracial neo-fascist group. And they were able to play the game that they were not that crowd. They are not neo-Nazis. They are not racist or whatever, even though in many respects they are. And ironically enough, one of the guys, Enrico Tario, um, the leader of the Proud Boys, um, he was at Charlottesville. That's where I first met him. He was standing with the militia groups. Um, so it shows that they are afraid of us. Now you cut to January 6th, and this is going to be really important. That prompted another round of us basically trying to put the hammer down on them after what they did at the Capitol. Um, and that also has caused um, more rebranding. But the rebranding is weird because now we finding are finding ourselves fighting um, people who are supposed to be our friends because the rebranding is including folks that say that they're liberals and they voted for Biden and and they um and they want to try to just like work with the fascists. Even I think I even brought this up to you once before. They're trying to white explain Fred Hampton, say, well, Fred Hampton worked for fascists and Fred Hampton worked with the Klan back in the day. He said, no, Fred Hampton did not. But they, he worked with the Young Patriots organization and they, and they were not Klan. But they used that to justify them working with fascists, them working with Nazis. And and really trying to pass off some routine where we all should just have a dialogue amongst each other so we can fight a common enemy. There's no common enemy um, with fascists. None. They are the enemy. And the more that you that gets reinforced, the more that we will be able to beat it back. But we don't. But it shows you just how important. And how effective our fight, our fight on our side has been, because when you have white supremacists that feel they need to have um, folks on the left and people of color to stand with them to advance themselves, then that says that they had lost a lot of ground over the past four years alone, let alone the past 50 years. And that should be some solace for us as we look for as we look at this anniversary. Yeah, you know, I never I never thought of it that way. And I appreciate you framing their positioning in that way, because that does give me encouragement and it gives me, you know, hope. And I do appreciate you again pointing out the issue with, you know, the the Fred Hampton uh, organizing the Rainbow Coalition with the Young Patriots in particular, because what people leave out of that history is, of course, that the requirement was that if people in the Young Patriots and any white people who were organizing with the Rainbow Coalition in Chicago had racist tendencies, they had to get rid of them. <laughs> they had to exactly. repudiate their racist ideology. That was a requirement. We could organize with you fine, but you can't be a racist. So that they, I do love how they leave that out. You know, I, I, I do wonder how you are seeing, Daryl, the way— People are uh, able to respond to the the obvious lack of or, or the difference in security, if you want to call it that, the, the difference in the law enforcement response uh, between what happened on January 6th and what happened in Charlottesville, something that, uh, again, Heather Heyer's mother 
uh, pointed out. Do you see this uh, in the movement in the streets, people connecting not just, you know, the difference between the law enforcement responses between January 6th and, uh, you know, the George Floyd protest, but but specifically Charlottesville and specifically those kind of uh, protests that happened around the country at that time challenging these neo-fascist organizations where the police not only arrested the non-racist, the anti-fascist, the, you know, the black element, but they actually either sided with the fascist by joining in with them or just by standing by, as they did in Charlottesville. They were conveniently, you know, conspicuous. They just weren't around suddenly. Um, do, do you see people making a better connection on that on that point between Charlottesville and January 6th? And how do we deal with that going forward? I don't think they talk about it as much in Charlottesville as they do now. I think it took um, last year when everything was blowing up over um, George Floyd. I think that was what started um, people to look at the police a little bit harder in that regard. Um, I do say, however, when it comes to um, those that got arrested um, stemming from Charlottesville, with the exception of James Fields, they had to deal with him right away. But it wasn't the police really that was doing the investigations that led to the arrests of um, of the various people who were responsible for the violence that day. I mean, I always try to tell people, it took the folks on Twitter, um, identifying um, all the neo-Nazis and demanding of the police to arrest these and, um, and um, convict them. We forced their hand. So I always tell people this is the one that is pretty much the one time you can actually look at the police and say, OK, they did what we told them to do. The one time in maybe a hundred years of policing that I can think of where they did what they were supposed to do because we told them to. Um, and that's, and that's why I always tell people, even today, we protect ourselves, you know, but in regards to, um, how the police respond to these individuals, respond to these, um, to these elements, um, the fact that we had to tell them, also um, transferred over into um, what we saw on January 6th. Unlike us, whenever things happen where um, people in the streets, when things are just blowing up and people are out there um, and the police are engaging with us, we don't go home after. They went home after January 6th. They were arrested at home. Just like in Charlottesville, they were arrested at home. And that's the important thing that we have to reinforce. The police aren't doing their job. They, we are doing their job. We are insisting that we are protected from those circles and from those elements. It is the only reason why you see arrests um, for whether you're talking about Charlottesville or January 6th. They didn't try then. They're not trying now. And they're even trying to defend them in the wake of all of this. So when you talk about um, issues like the fund the police and stuff like that, a lot of that comes from the fact that they haven't shown that they can be um, effective against those kinds of elements, nor do they show that they want to be. So 
we have to be in a position where we can protect ourselves when they fall short. And, and I do mean when. But we also have to start looking at the, um, at the fact that there needs to be some sort of restructuring, a lot of restructuring, so that we don't have to worry about this going forward. Because they're not going to stop. The fascists in this country are not going to stop. Charlottesville, I always tell people that Charlottesville was a case of um, the whole, this is our wake-up call, yes. So why do we have people that are still asleep when January 6th comes rolling around? What's going what's gonna to be the next big thing? What's gonna, how many people are going to be hurt and killed then? Do we have to wait for it next time? The answer to that question is no, and we won't. Absolutely. Well, we thank you so much, Daryl, for joining us today. We're going to leave it there. We'll move to a break here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C., but we will be back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back. By any means necessary, you're on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And today we're discussing an update in the case of Julian Assange, and we're happy to be joined for this conversation by Mohammed El Mazi, journalist and editor of the Interregnum. Mohammed, thanks so much for joining us. Uh, thanks for inviting me. Absolutely. And uh, Mohammed, uh, yesterday there was a, a hearing that took place uh, in the case of uh, Julian Assange, a journalist and also, of course, of WikiLeaks. And you published a piece about this with uh, Kevin Gostelow, sort of detailing what happened. I was hoping we could sort of break down uh, just what went down at this hearing and what is the significance to Julian's case? Sure. So just to explain it properly, I'll give uh, what led up to this. The U.S. government, as your listeners may know, is appealing the decision by the district judge at the magistrate's court, uh, Vanessa Baratzer, who refused to grant extradition of Julian Assange to the United States on health grounds, on that he posed a, a substantial or a very high risk of suicide or self-harm should he be extradited and subjected to the various conditions that she was convinced he would be subjected to, including uh, special administrative measures, various forms of isolation or solitary confinement. Um, and this was also uh, that it would be driven by um, his being on the autism spectrum, albeit the high functioning end of the autism spectrum. Um, she did not find in favor of defense when it came to any of the other grounds on basis of freedom of speech or human rights or that this case was politically motivated. Uh, and that's something that worried many of us. I, I wrote a piece in Jacobin which detailed that called, uh, it's a victory for Julian Assange, but not for uh, press freedom. People can look that up. So the US government has appealed that decision and they've appealed it to the High Court of Justice. Uh, and there they appealed on five grounds, although a number of them are pretty related to each other. And a high court judge on the papers, so without an oral hearing, allowed them to argue three of the grounds and refused permission for them to argue the other two. So it's just about permitting them the opportunity to argue these grounds at an oral hearing. 
Um, so, the, so yesterday what happened was there was an oral hearing before two other high court judges and they considered the request by the US government to reverse the decision by the previous high court judge and allow the additional two grounds to be argued in a future appeal hearing. And ultimately they agreed. So now there are five grounds uh, of appeal, which will be permitted to be heard on the 27th and the 28th of October at the High Court of Justice. Now, a lot of this uh, has to do with the concerns, uh, aside from the, the concerns about Assange's health, but also about the concerns that of the safety of his family. Uh, and I'm wondering if you can give us some insight into what that issue has to do with this uh, uh, recent ruling and why it's so important. Well, uh, so, you know, one of the main grounds is that the judge didn't apply the correct test uh, when she determined that it would be oppressive to extradite Mr. Assange on grounds of his mental condition. Um, that's how they worded it. Oppressive is in the law, right? So that you're not meant to extradite someone if it would be oppressive. And in determining that there was a high risk of suicide, she found it that it would be oppressive to extradite him. Um, and, but another one of the grounds, the one that was that was debated yesterday as to whether or not they should be allowed to argue it, and ultimately the judges said, yes, they will be allowed, is that when one of the uh, clinical psychiatrists, uh, in this case, Professor Kopelman, wrote his preliminary report, he um, he failed to explicitly mention the fact that Julian Assange was in a relationship with Stella Morris and that she had uh, two children by him and that this had occurred while they were in the uh, Ecuadorian embassy, that this relationship had developed then. And... Um, it was put to the court when, uh, by the prosecution, but the fact that he didn't disclose that in his first report, although he did in his uh, in his final report, means that he violated his obligations under uh, uh, what is required for an expert witness to to omit nothing that uh, he's supposed to understand that his obligation, the ultimate obligation, is to the court, which overrides any other obligation. Um, and therefore, the judge should have dismissed entirely his report, which he relied on, not in isolation, but nonetheless relied on a fair bit in order to determine his his mental state and his risk of suicide. And um, the professor's explanation, which ultimately the judge accepted, although she did recognize that he did somewhat uh, uh, make a was misleading when he omitted that information, but that she says she was not misled ultimately. Uh, and that's because she found out about the relationship before she even read the report. She also heard testimony that the reason he had excluded it is because he was originally asked to on the basis that, I mean, let's not forget the circumstances. UC Global, this private security firm hired by the CIA, well, originally hired by the Ecuadorians to protect the embassy, but then covertly hired by the US government in parallel so that they would start spying on them. There was discussion of possible assassinations. There were threats against members of their family. There was an attempt to retrieve the nappy of one of his, uh, one of his, you know, infant children on, on to see if they could get DNA samples, which of course you can't from feces, but perhaps they didn't realize that. Um, 
So it isn't within this context that they were trying to keep. They they'd asked the psychiatrist if a, if if in at least the early stage he could keep that information out of the report, and um, he'd spoken to the one of the defense lawyers, and they said that they would seek uh, legal uh, assurances or or a legal a detailed legal analysis of it, and so he 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 omitted it in the first report, not the second report. Though it did eventually come out, right? And his his position was he was not trying to be deceptive. It was just, uh, it was you know, it was kind of stuck between a rock and a hard place. He was trying to be respectful of the concerns and the and the under the particular context. And so that is perhaps the safety situation that we're to, that you're referring to. Um, but now what's happening is that the prosecution will be allowed, or the U.S. government is going to be allowed to argue uh, in October during the oral hearing, that the fact that he did that uh, means that the judge should have discounted his entire medical assessment. Um, and uh, given the fact that he, his refusal, her refusal to extradite Julian Assange to the United States is based on her preferencing certain medical testimony over other medical testimony, the, that pushed by the, or offered by the government, the US government, uh, would obviously balance then this case heavily in their favor. Yeah. And, you know, I never cease to be astounded, Mohammed. Like when you describe everything that uh, Julian Assange has been through being confined to the embassy for all of that time being surveilled, uh, having his, you know, child's diaper rifled through and and why for doing journalism. And that really is something that I think um, people should keep in mind when considering really anything uh, about Julian Assange. And I mean, here in the United States, uh, we're told that, you know, this was a man who was conducting espionage and he was uh, releasing secrets that put, you know, people in danger or things like that. I mean, it's the same thing we hear with people like uh, Chelsea Matting or, or Edward Snowden or folks like this. It's always supposedly the danger that them leaking the information supposedly brought about. But, you know, the actual crimes of the governments contained in those uh, leaks and in those documents just I mean, sort of gets glossed over. And so I always think it's important to sort of continue to situate what's happening to Assange in the sense of, you know, this sort of imperial war machine continuing to having to justify its existence and really wanting to continue with its campaign of uh, wars and suffering for so many people uh, around the world. And when you have people like Assange who try to shed a light on it, then they have to become a target and they have to be subject to uh, what I think we can call uh, outright torture. Uh, yeah, well, that was certainly the finding of the uh, UN expert on torture and two other independent uh, experts in examining torture victims who who noted when they had visited uh, Julian Assange that he showed the, all the symptoms of being psychologically tortured. But um, yeah, I mean, it does seem that the prosecution almost are trying to get to trying to relitigate the entire case, but in a context where the high court judges won't have had the benefit of hearing all the various expert testimony that was challenged and quite often in detail. Um, uh, you know what I mean? They'll just be seeing a part of it. So the judge, you know, did question and and the prosecution did cross-examine extensively over a day, Professor Kopelman, and the judge did consider the various arguments made by the prosecution. 
And she ultimately found Professor Koppelman to be uh, reliable and impartial as is required, even though there was a slight lapse in his uh, ultimate decision in the primary, the preliminary report, not even the final report, to exclude explicit mention of uh, Julian Assange's fiance Stella Morris. Um, meanwhile, as was revealed in Stunden, the Icelandic paper, uh, a key witness in the case of Julian Assange admits that uh, key arguments under the so-called conspiracy charge were a result of lies that he fabricated in order to secure a deal with the U.S. Department of Justice. And uh, <laughs> I don't know how much uh, coverage that's been getting in the United States. I think I saw something on De Democracy Now! Um, Sigurdur Ingi Thordarsson, forgive my Icelandic pronunciation, um, was recruited by U.S. authorities to build a case against Assange after misleading them to believe he was previously a close associate of his. And so he had, at the time, multiple convictions. He had convictions for fraud, embezzlement, um, sex offense offenses for deceiving minor children into uh, sexual encounters. So he had convictions for these. He had, there was a medical report for um, produced for the court that determined that uh, he showed uh, uh, basically had a documented history of uh, sociopathy. I think it was uh, like explicitly determined by the medical professionals that he understands uh, right from wrong. He, he He's just incapable or, of caring. And this was a key witness in the U.S. indictment against uh, Julian Assange. Have these revelations resulted in the indictment collapsing, um, reflecting bad faith? Uh, no, just like the revelations of UC Global spying on lawyer-client privilege conversations of Julian Assange and his lawyers and family members and journalists who visited him in the embassy and others, and discussion even about, of, of possible poisoning and kidnapping him from the uh, embassy. That didn't result in the collapse of the case either. Definitely. Well, we thank you so much, Mohammed, for joining us today. We're going to leave it there and move to a break here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. But we will be back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And today we're talking about the impact of think tanks on the media and the government. And we're happy to be joined for this conversation by Dan Cohen, a journalist with Beyond the Headlines. Dan, thanks so much for joining us. Hey, thanks for having me. Absolutely. And Dan, you recently published a, a piece here with uh, Mint Press entitled uh, Top New York Times WAPO Experts Affiliated with Pentagon-Funded CNAS Think Tank. And that CNAS stands for the Center for a New American Security. And, you know, this is an interesting piece, Dan, because I think when people generally consider think tanks, they just 
you know, think of them as these, you know, uh, big, well-funded institutions where people just sort of sit around and think all day and publish papers. And it just sort of uh, goes into the ether never to be seen again. But but uh, what you lay out here in your piece is that in the case of uh, Center for New American Security, uh, not only does this have sort of a real impact on the narratives we see in the media, but uh, also uh, it has uh, threads and connections and positions right up into uh, the current White House. So I was hoping you could sort of break down just what is the Center for New American Security and how does its influence play out? Well, the Center for New American Security is arguably the most influential think tank in Washington today, um, or, or at least one of the most, in, in one of the most influential. Um, it basically was created um, in, during the Obama era in order to kind of, towards the end of the Bush era and then the Obama era, in order to um, take, you know, a, uh, to unite the parties in um, support for the permanent, of the permanent war state. And it played a major role in the Obama administration. Um, and, and, and basically a lot of the um, Obama administration alumni went into CNAS during the Trump years and now in the Biden era, um, a lot of them have migrated back into the Pentagon and State Department um, from CNAS. So CNAS is funded by um, the Pentagon and the State Department, um, a bunch of weapons companies, uh, oil corporations, basically just all the, the worst entities on the planet you can think of. And so there's no real kind of separation um, fundamentally between, you know, the government and the military and the think tank. And so it, you know, it just plays a huge role in policymaking. And if you look at, you know, the papers that come out, um, it is just the key promoter um, of the new Cold War with China, with Russia, um, you know, basically advocating for permanent war on every front, including Afghanistan. Um, so it is just the quintessential permanent war think tank. And not only is it uh, a permanent war think tank, but it's also like a farm industry, like the farm team for appointments or appointees to presidential administrations, including Joe Biden's. How many people in the Biden administration currently are connected with uh, CNAS? Well, in the Biden administration, between the Pentagon and the State Department, um, there are 16 people uh, from CNAS. So, you know, there's quite a few, and they, and, and they, uh, they occupy top positions in the, in the Pentagon and State Department. Um, you know, one of whom comes to mind is Victoria Newland, who I think is Undersecretary for Policy at the State Department, a very important position. Um, and, you know, she, during the Obama years, was kind of the, um, the overseer of the coup in Ukraine that brought you know, hard, hard right wing, um, Nazi infested government to power um, that would oppose, oppose Russia and support kind of U.S. and NATO. Um, and she went to CNAS during the Trump years. And then she was given a, something like $400,000, $300,000 severance package um, in preparation for her transition into the Biden administration, assuming Biden won, which, of course, he did. And now she's back at the State Department. Um, you know, basically, um, you know, continuing to ramp up um, aggressions, particularly with 
Russia in, in Eastern Europe. I mean, there are, there are numerous figures like her, but she's, I think, you know, one of the most egregious examples. Definitely. And, you know, I wanted to dig a little bit more, Dan, into how this think tank connects to the media. And earlier you you were talking about uh, some of the narratives that they really prop up here. And you also lay it out in your piece, you know, things about, you know, the Afghan bounties, uh, uh, the Wuhan lab leak conspiracy theory and all these sorts of things. And I think this is important because, you know, the American people are subject to a 24 hour corporate news cycle. And we're all sort of led to believe that, you know, these narratives and these messages that we're receiving are, you know, basically uh, objective and, you know, apolitical, maybe even although, you know, uh, they're generally either a liberal or conservative if we're talking about the major platforms, although they always seem to be in lockstep when it comes to foreign policy, more or less. But even still, I just don't think that the American people really have a grasp of the fact that there are these, you know, military and intelligence people who have these kinds of revolving door apparatuses that are constantly put before them that indelibly colors the way that this coverage is given and that ultimately is going to always justify U.S. military aggression. And so to me, it, it, this uh, what we see from think tanks like CNAS feel like a part and parcel of skewing the consciousness of the American people and manufacturing consent for uh, uh, imperialist wars. Right, right. I mean, it's, you know, if you look at basically, you know, my piece shows there are several um, so-called journalists, uh, top reporters from the New York Times, Washington Post, and Foreign Policy Magazine. Um, And these are kind of the most elite media institutions in the United States. These reporters are what they call writers in residence at CNAS. Um, so, you know, they're directly affiliated with this ultra hawkish think tank um, that, you know, is basically there to satisfy its funders and, and promote um, U.S. aggression and war. And if you look at their track record, what these reporters put out on a basically daily basis, what they have put out on a daily basis for the past two decades, it fits perfectly. I mean, you look at uh, David Sanger, Eric Schmidt, guys like that, what they were doing um, um, back in the, you know, George Bush days, they were promoting the Iraqi WMD hoax, which, you know, now is basically universally um, recognized and, and accepted as the lie that it was. And, and you know, was, was obvious to so many of us back, back then. Um, but, you know, instead of these guys, you know, taking a, a day off to kind of think about what they've done wrong, they realize that that's actually a recipe for um, success, for a successful career. Um, and so they continued to um, promote lies about Iranian weapons of mass destruction, that Iran has a nuclear weapons program, which is just blatantly false. Um, they've promoted um, lies about, um, about uh, uh, the, as, as, what you said, the, the uh, Russian bounty story in Afghanistan that Putin was, you know, ordering, uh, paying Taliban soldiers to kill Amer- to Taliban fighters to kill American soldiers, which was obviously false and served the purpose of, of um, basically pressuring Trump to uh, 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 take a more aggressive stance against Russia. Um, and then that story was retracted. Yet these guys, you know, just they just based it off anonymous intelligence officials as if that's, you know, that's some gold standard that you can't question. 
Um, and then now they're pushing the Wuhan lab leak theory, you know, conspiracy theory, which has no basis in reality. And the vast majority of epidemiologists have, have laughed at. Um, so, you know, now it's on to the new Cold War with China. So basically every war that the U.S. has been involved in, every aggression, they've been pumping out the propaganda con- to basically convince the public um, that, you know, it's necessary and just. And, and so now these guys are, you know, it's all about China in Washington now. That's the bipartisan consensus is for a Cold War with China. And so all the propaganda that we read on a daily basis in the New York Times, in the Washington Post, in Foreign Policy Magazine, and basically every other mainstream pub- publication is all in support of this war. Yeah, well, you know, and that makes sense, and particularly when you talk about the, the, the Wuhan lab leak conspiracy, because, you know, when Donald Trump first sort of put out that narrative, I mean, it was just so transparently ridiculous and racist. But now we have Biden, who we were told was the anti-Trump, um, basically doing the same thing. It's just, I mean, you know, somehow we're supposed to look at it as as different because his uh, delivery of it is a little more polite. But this seems to be another aspect of uh, the role that these sorts of think tanks play in the media. It's the kind of whitewashing of uh, narratives to where you don't really see the uh, the impact of it and the way that this uh, new Cold War with China was stoking things like anti-Asian violence here in the United States and how really it doesn't solve any of America's problems to do this. I mean, you, you know, if one is to blame China for the coronavirus, that certainly doesn't improve our situation here with that or the economic situation or the housing situation or anything like that. And so it's like this kind of whitewashing and deflection game that is played by successive administrations, both Democrat and Republican. And the media seems to be an important point of that whole process, because as you point out in your piece, I think we have to really see the media as part of the military industrial complex. Exactly. There's no real separation between any of, you know, any of these entities. It's basically just, you know, a huge blob. I mean, the money that's flowing back and forth um, and the personnel between weapons companies, um, the government, the military, the media, it it just basically, you know, and people talk about, you know, other countries, basically, you know, adversaries of the U.S. and say, oh, it's all state propaganda. You can't trust it. And it's, I mean, that's, that's essentially what this is. It should be a huge scandal. I mean, the, how, how, you know, considered, which are considered kind of like liberal bulwark, journalistic, uh, you know, uh, 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 journalistic excellence. How is it that they have um, this, this, you know, affiliation, that their top reporters are affiliated with them? With, with this think tank, and it's totally, it's not a scandal. It's incredible that this isn't a scandal, especially when you look at, you know, that they've been wrong again and again. But it just shows how corrupt uh, the, the media is in the United States. Um, you know, when you, when you think about, you know, that these guys have basically pushed every deception, and that's been great for their career. That has actually ensured their career success. So, you know, by basically doing fake news, um, it's just about, you know, getting the, 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 the right fake news. Um, and then, you know, you can have a great career. So, you know, you can go to Columbia um, Journalism School. You can, you know, come out, work your way up into the, to the ranks of the New York Times and, and build connections, um, you know, with, uh, with, you know, the, the Pentagon um, brass and, 
and basically, you know, have a, have a great career promoting lies that will get, um, you know, potentially millions and millions of people killed. And that's what is con- considered journalism in the United States today. And it's, and it's absolutely despicable. Yeah, and you know, that was one the last thing I wanted to touch on with you, Dan, that, that you spoke about, and that's just a complete lack of accountability. I mean, when it comes to talking about countries that the United States deems as an enemy, I mean, it seems that you can literally say anything, and it just straight up does not matter whether or not it is uh, true. And when it's often found to be not true, there's no recourse, there's no consequence for them having told the public a blatantly incorrect thing. And so, for those who have this sort of careerist mindset, I mean, that's a pretty sweet deal. I mean, you can say whatever you want, uh, get on TV, maybe get a primetime spot, and even if you're wrong, no one's going to hold you into account. And so it's just like a strange sort of uh, industry that's been crafted around this. And it's not only harmful to our understanding of the world here in the States. As you note, Dan, it's uh, literally harmful in an immediate uh, physical existential way uh, to untold millions of people around this earth. Exactly. Exactly. It really just says everything about the United States. You know, people believe that we have some kind of, you know, free press. Um, you know, and that, you know, journalists can publish what they want. Um, and, 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 you know, that's, and, and, you know, you have Jim, Jim Shudo doing, uh, um, you know, like WWF style, uh, showdowns with Donald Trump at, um, at the white house and getting banned and all of these things. But in the Biden, you know, in the Biden era, that's all gone away. Cause all the, all the, you know, beltway reporters all spawn over Jen Psaki and talk about, you know, how they have actual, uh, uh crushes on her. Um, but, you know, I mean, you just really couldn't ask for a more um, compliant press corps. And, it's, and it's, it's, now it's just out in the open that they're directly affiliated as if it's celebrated um, how, um, you know, how willing to act as, as, you know, basically CIA mouthpieces and, you know, government stenographers uh, these, you know, so-called reporters are. And it should be a massive scandal, but, you know, it's basically... The, I mean, it's, you know, this is the kind of thing that a, a journalist would report on, like I did, that the fact that journalists are basically owned by the permanent war state and are just basically, and are part, and are part of it. There's no separation. I mean, one of the questions I had, and, uh, you know, I asked CNAS, but they didn't answer, is if they're paid. Are these guys actually paid by CNAS? Because then that means they're basically, they are indirectly paid by the U.S. government and these weapons companies. I mean, that's just, that's, you know, you can't get a bigger journalistic scandal than that. But, you know, it's basically just falling on deaf ears because that's how corrupt and, and you know, disgusting the U.S. media is. Definitely. Well, we thank you so much, Dan, for joining us today. We're going to leave it there. We'll move to a break here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We will be back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. Oh, yes, we're here. We're back. Top of the hour. It is Thursday, August 12th, 2021. 
And of course, in 20 minutes, you'll be able to give us a call. Remember, by any means necessary to give us your thoughts, ideas, questions, or concerns about anything you've heard on the show today, anything at all relevant happening on this earth. We want to hear from you, but that's not the only way that folks can get in touch with us here on the show. And if you would, please, Jackie, let the folks know how they can reach out. That's right, Sean. There are so many ways for our allies, accomplices, and comrades that you to reach out and touch us at By Any Means Necessary here in Washington, D.C. They can do that at 3.20 p.m. Eastern Standard Time by calling us at 202-521-1320. That's 202-521-1320. But they can also hit us up on social media, on Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube at BAM Necessary. Then our shows can be downloaded on iTunes, where we would very much appreciate a good rating. They can hear us on iHeartRadio, Spotify, Spreaker, Stitcher, and lots of other podcast platforms. They can listen to us live on SputnikNews.com and on their radio dial at 105.5 FM and 1390 AM in the Washington, D.C. area. And remember, friends, at 3.20 p.m. Eastern today, you can call us at 202-521-1320. That's 202-521-1320. But wherever you are in this world and however you do it, we want to hear from you. We most certainly do. We most certainly do. And it is our esteemed pleasure to be joined for the hour today by Marshall Eddie Conway, former Black Panther, political prisoner, and executive producer of The Real News Network. Mr. Conway, thanks so much for joining us. Oh, thanks for having me. Absolutely. And, you know, uh, Mr. Conway, at the top of the hour here, I was just looking at this news that came down that the Texas Senate, after a 15-hour filibuster by the Democrats, passed the Republican voting restrictions bill. And, uh, you know, this will basically make uh, voting less accessible uh, to folks there in the state of Texas. It will stop people from being sent mail-in ballots, giving a lot of power to uh, uh, poll workers. It'll restrict people from, you know, helping people vote uh, with disabilities and things like that. Just obviously things to keep people away, keep as many as possible away from the vote. And, you know, when, when thinking about this, this broader issue, I mean, this is an issue because we're not talking about this in the 1960s. We're talking about this in, in 2021. This is the 21st century. And yet here we are uh, a few decades after a civil rights movement that sort of uh, focused on the vote to sort of expose uh, systemic white supremacy at many different levels. And in the years since, we've seen a, a rolling back of those rights, along with many others that I think we can name. And, you know, for me, Mr. Conway, it sort of exposes the centrality of white supremacy in the capitalist machine that is the United States. And I know that uh, recently on The Real News, you were uh, uh, interviewing some people who were trying to eradicate what they call, you know, the last vestiges of slavery, particularly the 13th Amendment, which is what legalizes slavery in the United States under a mass incarceration. That's why the super exploitation of prisoners um, takes place the way that it does. And we've definitely seen that, you know, during the pandemic, you know, the the prison labor uh, prisoners making hand sanitizer that they're not even allowed to have because it has alcohol in it and things like that. And so when uh, considering that, Mr. Conway, particularly now, uh, as we continue to be in Black August, which sort of has at its heart and its root the remembrance and study and upliftment of 
uh, political prisoners, those past and those present. I mean, I just wonder how these different sort of systemic issues are striking you as a number of different issues swirling around us seem to be intensifying the struggle. Uh, well, I, I think first, and, and, and I'll go back to just the 13th Amendment and I'll maybe start this conversation on a positive note of people on the ground, grassroots level, pushing back uh, in the state of California and several other states, an organization called All, All of Us or None, which is in about 16 states with about 30 chapters, are challenging the state laws that support the 13th Amendment Exclusion Clause that allows states to treat prisoners as slaves. So they have no rights. They have no uh, recourse in terms of how their labor is used. Uh, they can be punished at whim, uh, and they can be forced to work, or they will lose time on their sentences, and they can be put in solitary confinement. Several states in the Southwest now has passed uh, laws that says the state can no longer recognize the slavery clause in the Constitution in terms of state law, and it has to treat prisoners as if they were normal people. Uh, uh, that law is caught up in California, in the, uh, the California State House now, but there's a drive across the country. And what this means is that it will take the economics incentive out of enslaving over 2 million people here in America, because pretty much that's what it is. Um, and I think pushing those laws and getting those laws passed is part of what the Republican Party is in fear of, because it, they're old, they're tired, they're narrow-minded, and they know they can't continue to win nationally or locally because the younger population is starting to become aware and they're starting to push back in Cleveland and other places, uh, and they're demanding a different kind of uh, situation on the ground. And they're using those ballots and they're using that stuff uh, to make changes. So in Texas, like the Texas governor forced this to happen because the Democrats basically had ran out. And I'm not for Democrats or Republicans because they, they just have different ways in which they screw over us, screw over everybody, not just poor people, black people, but people in general. Uh, but one does it with a smile, the other one does it with uh, a sheet. But it's the same thing in the final analysis. You're screwed over. It's, um, and I, I think, and, and just the, the leap forward, I was looking at the, looking at the situation in South Africa now between blacks and Indians. And, um, you know, the history of this is that, uh, the former president Zuma got locked up. Uh, he had a relation, a strong relationship with, uh, the Indian community, uh, they claimed that there was state capture by some billionaire Indian uh, leaders. Uh, the end result is he got locked up. He was a Zulu. 
Uh, there's been racial disturbances in the Zulu areas for the last month or so, and this had played out in conflicts between the Indians and the blacks in South Africa. Uh, and so the Indians lived a fairly middle-class, well-to-do, suburbia, gated community, armed, etc. And, of course, they support and endorse uh, white supremacy. The blacks live in townships, uh, no water, no electricity. Uh, they're still impoverished. Uh, the resources are there, but they don't have access to them. Uh, the ANC has been in power for 30 years. Uh, wow, which is kind of surprising, uh, but oh, close to being in power for 30 years. And uh, one of the things that they pointed out down on the ground was they had democracy. They had the ability to vote. They just didn't have control of the resources. And so I think that's a key factor here. We're pushing and we need to be pushing for that ability to vote. But the problem will always remain one of economics. If you don't have the resources, if you can't use the resources available to take care of your community and your people, but instead that wealth is being extracted to send billionaires to space or do other kind of things on the planet that does not take care of you, then you're in a predicament that will eventually lead you, and I want to bring this back to the fentanyl kind of thing, it will eventually lead you into the community to be, to look for alternatives, to escape reality, to be susceptible to taking drugs, to, to, to drinking, to, uh, to, uh, trying to dodge the reality that you find yourself in. Uh, and that's the situation that we have now. And the, and I hope I'm not rambling, but to throw it back now to the 13th Amendment and why that clause is important, it's necessary to look at Hagerstown. It's necessary to look at Cumberland. Necessary to look at uh, ECI in the Eastern Shores, Somerset. Um, it's necessary to look at those huge, and I say huge because I'm talking 10,000 prisoners or more, huge prison complexes out in the rural areas that's hundreds of miles away from urban centers. And the one thing that happens in these centers, which is important, is not just the slavery aspect, but the class of cultures you have in rural communities, people that are basically white supremacist program kind of culture, American exceptionalism, we're the greatest thing that ever happened. Uh, and they're a tight community and 99% white in most cases. Uh, and then you have an imported population of young urban blacks, men and women, uh, and with a different cultural perception that certainly suffered the consequences and still suffer the consequences of slavery. 
And all of a sudden, now they're in a predicament where they're in slavery again. And they know that now they're considered slaves and they're forced to work. And there's a level of rebellion. And that rebellion plays out between those two cultures uh, as conflict. And the conflict is always resolved with tear gas, uh, mace, billy clubs, guns, and sometime in the middle of the night, sheets and ropes. And the population from the urban communities look at what's going on, and they're 200 miles away. They're in Allegheny County, or they're, they're so far away that they rarely get visits. They look at the situation, and they just decide, uh, well, okay, this is wrong, but there's nothing we can do about it. We fight. They hurt us. Nobody says anything. No support from the community. Uh, we're just going to have to bite the bullet on this one. And they get angry. They get hostile. And then they come home to the urban areas. And that anger and that hostility is aggression. Aggression is transferred to the black community. You know, y'all let them do this to us. Y'all didn't look out for us. Y'all wasn't there when we needed y'all. Uh, uh, this is, you know, I have no loyalty or no respect for the community or the people in the community because y'all didn't look out for us when they were macing us and clubbing us and, and killing uh, Cousin Harold, so on. And that plays out in terms of one, getting high, ducking the reality that, well, damn, we were slaves, we were treated as slaves, we're still slaves, we're still being treated as slaves, nobody cares about us, and we need another reality. And so, and then you add the layer to that, no jobs, and no possibility of a job. And so then you have not only the the, the need for drugs, but the need, economically need, to participate in that drug activity. And then you have that anger of us against the world, or me against the world, in most cases, or in street organizations, us against the world. But, so you have violence being manufactured by that slavery in those far-out counties, and that violence end up coming back to the community, and then people, news reporters, et cetera, et cetera, sit around and say, why are they killing each other? Why is this violence going on? What's the problem? And no one looks at the economics of it. No one looks at the, the impact of slavery. No one looks at the psychology of hundreds and hundreds of years of knowing that slavery was bad, and then waking up one morning and finding yourself in a cell being treated as a slave. No one looks at that. No one calls that into question because that would call into question the economic arrangement. And I think it's important that we start looking at how we're paying through our taxes to create this violence in these far-out counties who's living in a lapse of luxury, taking out tax money, 
and abusing our children and our brothers and our sisters and daughters and sons and then sending them back to kill us and we're paying for it. Similar to what we do when we pay for those people that's supposed to serve and protect. But I think I'm going to stop here because I'm probably rambling a little bit. But uh. No, I, I don't think you were rambling at all. Because as you were talking, Eddie, I'm thinking about the way that we are a colonized people. And we are in the domestic colony in the beating heart of imperialism. And we don't even realize it. We don't realize that the same way that you just talked about our incarcerated family members, brothers and sisters, aunts, uncles, fathers, mothers, cousins, sons, daughters, are isolated behind the walls hundreds sometimes thousands of miles away from family members. So people can't visit. They don't know what's going on. Family members don't know what's being done to folks inside the walls. The, the, the prison system has restricted mail. I think that's a federal mandate now where mail is being, I think the mail is handled basically by one company. Uh, And they have taken to restricting the mail. It's already read. Everyone's mail is already read. You can't send folks books that are considered too radical. There are no libraries in most prisons. So people are not able to get information out to their people about what's being done to them. So uh, they're physically isolated. And in that same way, we are isolated in this colony, in this country from our brothers and sisters in the diaspora who are suffering under the same economic oppression that we're suffering under. But because we're convinced that we're not like those folks over there, you know, the same way that we're convinced that the folks who are locked up, well, they deserve to be locked up. They, if they hadn't committed a crime, then they wouldn't be in prison. So all manner of abuses can be carried out against those people. and. What happens when they come back into their into into the community in the condition, the mental condition that you just mentioned, also facing the further economic oppression? Then, then what are too many folks in our communities do? We say, well, we need more police to deal with the the criminals that came in the community. So I feel like Eddie, this is this is what you described is 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 certainly. And an example like the organizing that's gone on in the states on the ground to shift policy toward states not recognizing this clause in the 13th Amendment. But I feel like that is almost a, a metaphor to the importance of prison abolition and solidarity with incarcerated people writ large uh, among all of us in this community and the importance of international solidarity in order to fight this entire system that creates the whole thing. But I mean, I, you could have kept talking. So I'm not, I'm going to stop now and, and you can respond to that. Real quick, uh, hold that thought, Mr. Conway. Just want to let our listeners know phone lines are now open 202-521-1320. That's 202-521-1320. Myself and Jackie Lukeman continue to be joined by Eddie Conway. Mr. Conway, your response. Um, you know, and I, I think that's why I went to South Africa, because economics 
I mean, you have 13% of the population owning 85% of the wealth, and it's been that way from day one. Uh, nothing has changed. And so now we see conflicts between various ethnic groups on the ground playing out uh, uh, and in the process of uh, hundreds and hundreds of black people are being killed. Uh, a small number of Indians have been killed. Uh, no white people have been killed. And people are sitting back in the background benefiting from this divide and conquer. And in most cases, just like in Allegheny County or or Somerset or Hagerstown and so on, most people in those communities think they're right. Think they're doing something to make society better by taking control of these out-of-control people that they have no idea of why they don't appreciate their benefits of living in America because they have democracy, which, of course, now they are taking away uh, gradually. And, in fact, that, I think one of the things that we need to watch is what kind of deal did Biden make with the Republicans about this infrastructure bill uh, that is going to allow them to take away our voting rights on a federal level. It's going to put us back in a predicament of Jim Crow. Um, And we need to watch that because even though we have a black Indian, whatever up there uh, sitting in the background, uh, we can't forget that half of the prison, not half of it, but much of the prison industrial complex explosion has been on her watch in California. Uh, so there is there is no concern about slavery or abuse. It's only concern about how much I can make or how much my family or my network can make. So we need to watch what kind of deal is being made with this infrastructure uh, uh, bill that's going through now that's really, that, that's making the Republicans jump on board and endorse it. What's being sold off? We're being sold off. We're, it's almost, almost similar to after Reconstruction. And we need to start kind of like look at that and pay attention to that. Uh, because that's going to be in our future. And, and people got to remember, Hitler didn't take power in Germany. Hitler was elected. Hitler, the democratic process, elected Hitler as the vice president, so to speak. Uh, and that's part of what Trump was trying to do. But it's certainly going to be something that Pence or or somebody or somebody with a a more acceptable kind of imagery, it's going to bring to us in 24. It's going to bring to the community. Uh, And conditions will be such that our voting rights will be so limited that we have to jump through hoops. And then, to be quite honest, and this is something that people need to pay attention to with fascist organizations is they always talk about the vote and this and that, but they don't want a vote. 
They don't want the vote. They want to get rid of the vote. Uh, uh, but they use that vote, they use that apparatus to get rid of it because they want an authoritarian society and then they can attempt to pass the laws that would be detrimental for the rest of the folks, uh, detrimental to the planet, in fact, you know, I mean, because it's it's not even an issue of poor people or black people or people of color or that kind of stuff. It's really an issue of the planet that's being destroyed. Not the planet is reacting to the destruction that's happening, and that reaction is going to cause uh, human life to be in jeopardy. Definitely. Well, we got a caller on the line we're going to bring in here. Todd, tell us what's on your mind. Hi, Sean and Jackie. Hear me? Yeah, go ahead. Good, good, great, great. It's my first time on, so the first time I'm doing this. This is a little off topic from what you're talking about, but it's something that has been really bothering me lately. There's, I'm sure you're aware of the, the, the leftist website, Counterpunch, counterpunch.org. It's a very great website, lots of great articles. But I've been noticing a lot of the main counterpunch writers have been going through these blistering attacks, like like a war on the left against like real anti-imperialist, wonderful people that I like. So people like uh, Ben Norton and Jimmy Dore and Glenn Greenwald, Matt Taibbi, Caitlin Johnston. Sometimes just because they, they're daring to have conversations with people on the right, such as Tucker Carlson, sometimes not agreeing with him, but being on the show, or, or they call them apologists for, uh, for uh, Assad or the Trump and left. And you know, these are people on Counterpunch, Jeff St. Clair, Paul Street, Anthony DiMaggio, Andrew Stewart, and it's really bothering me. Like, I don't know what's going on, why these people are... <clears throat> Action. I don't know if this is on your radar at all, or are you're aware of some of these people, but I think some of them might even have been on your show. So if you could just comment uh, on this, if you if you would if you can, I would appreciate it. Sure. Well, thanks a lot, Todd. Uh, good to hear from you. Hope to hear from you again soon. I mean, number one, I just want to say that I mean the the whole like podcast wars thing is whack. Uh, and that's number one. Number two, um, I, I have an idea of what you're talking about. I mean, number one, I mean, I don't, I, you know, in the broadest sense, I just don't believe you, you should platform uh, reactionaries. But when we talk about people attacking people for being anti-imperialists, what, what we're really discussing is a kind of political and ideological confusion on the part of people who consider themselves to be on the left in the United States. And what's at the root of it is a misunderstanding of imperialism, because there are people who may agree with us about our critique of the United States, what it does domestically, what it does abroad, its wars, its sanctions, uh, its economic blockades of different countries. They'll agree with that, but they'll also say, well, isn't China also imperialist? Isn't Russia also imperialist? They seem to think that any major country is sort of automatically Im imperialist. And it's, it's a misunderstanding, I think, of the concept itself. And see, this is why ideological clarity is so important. And this is a point I raise with China in particular all the time. Because when we look at China's rise, 
having emerged from what they call that century of humiliation to now be in the passing lane and on track to surpass the United States as the chief economic force on the world, that wasn't done through war. It wasn't done through colonialism or uh, occupation. It wasn't done through uh, austerity measures imposed by institutions like the World Bank or the International Monetary Fund. This was a, a peaceful rise. This was a rise built on cooperations and mutual exchange with different countries and things like that. And, you know, I'm not trying to paint it with a rose-colored glasses. Certainly any relationship has its contradictions. But the fundamental character of how China operates and what its stature is across the world, I don't think can be uh, compared to the United States. And that's just one example. And see, this goes back to something we talked about earlier, because people love to think that they're being a quote unquote nuanced when it comes to some of these questions. We talked about this most recently with Cuba. And see, the problem is folks will mess around and nuance their way to supporting imperialism. They'll nuance their way to saying, oh, well, you know, I mean, maybe sanctions aren't so bad. Or, I mean, you know, uh, U.S. intervention, maybe not the best thing, but I mean, you know, what other option is there? You know, sort of thing. Yeah, you know, <clears throat> you know, so we got these cruise missile communists. You've got these drone strikes socialists and they they can sit behind their keyboards and pat themselves on the back for having a so-called sophisticated analysis. When in reality, what they're promoting is detrimental to flesh and blood human beings. And so if you're so nuanced that you wind up having the same position as U.S. imperialism, then, you know, you need to check yourself to say the very least. But we're going to move to a break on that note here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. My dear friends, phone lines are still open. 202-521-1320. That's 202-521-1320. I am here. Jackie Lukeman is here. Mr. Eddie Conway is here. And you know, Mr. Conway, of course we're here in Black August. And we we, we really started the conversation talking about uh, how the mass incarceration system in the United States is a, a vestige of slavery. Black August, uh, a tradition birthed out of the radical prison movement itself. And I wanted to ask you, as a former political prisoner, about what you see as the ongoing relevance of George Jackson. And, and I try to bring up George as often as I can, particularly within the context of Black August, because I think it sort of helps us it roots us in what Black August really is, I think, and helps us to better understand it. It's sort of interesting because if you just do a cursory search on Black August, there's actually what I would consider a surprising number of articles and stuff about it. But the way the framing is a lot of the times, you may see a Black August um, article. It might not even mention George Jackson or political prisoners at all. And we see a framing of Black August as like a, a, like a radical Black History Month. And it's true that lots of uh, notable moments in black history happen in August. 
You know what I mean? Uh, The Haitian Revolution, Gabriel Prosser's Rebellion, uh, the establishment of the Underground Railroad, uh, Marcus Garvey's birthday, all these sorts of things. And we should acknowledge that, but that's not at the core of, you know, what Black August is supposed to represent. And given what we've been discussing in terms of mass incarceration and how that operates as a site really of extreme capitalist exploitation, I would call it super exploitation. And not only that, we're coming off of this, well, I don't want to say coming off like we're leaving it. I mean, we're in this reinvigorated moment for the movement for black lives after the uh, uh, George Floyd rebellions of last year. And so I'm just sort of broadly wondering how you see George Jackson and Black August as relevant to our current political moment. I I, I think the reason probably uh, George Jackson is being whitewashed from history um, is because he represents a symbol uh, in in the the Black Panthers world representing that particular symbol. He represents the symbol of a young black man being incarcerated and becoming political, becoming aware inside the prison, learning, thinking, training, and then out of necessity, because a lot of what George did was about survival of the black prison population uh, in a prison system that had primarily white guards and and, uh, Latino guards, and there was massive gangs that were constantly threatening the the black uh, populations. Uh, George organized, educated, and, and presented the theory that we're all in this together and that we all need to work together to change what's going on because at the top of the the, the food chain uh, is the ruling class, and right under them is the fascists. And George kind of pointed that out. And the thing is, and, and, and this is how Black August became important, not just Jonathan Jackson's death or George Jackson's death or Nat Turner's rebellion or so on, but because there was theory and practice, it's like, hey, we need to resist this. We need to recognize that this is a threat. And we can do that uh, going in jail, apolitical. We can study. We can learn. We can develop. We can become Malcolm X's. We can become George Jackson. We can become an instrument that looks out in uh try to protect our community as well as educate our young people about our history. George represented all that, and that's a threat. It's always the idea that's a threat and not necessarily the action itself because the powers that be don't want people to understand that they have the ability to control their future, their destiny. They just need to organize. People need to organize. People need to be active. And people need to have a sense of theory and consciousness. George represented all that, and he's still representing that now throughout the prison system. And this is why this is why he's whited out. And this is why the, the political movements, uh, especially the more radical movements, uh, that believe in self-defense and so on, has been whited out of what's going on even today. Uh, 
So, um, so it's the only way you can keep a slave, you know, is to cut off his toe and make him say he's Toby. And George and George represented like, no, I'm not, I'm not Toby. And so that's that's an important factor, but it's also important to make people think that they deserve to be slaves. They are are being treated fairly by being treated like slaves because whatever they did caused the the consequences of that is that they should be in slavery. Uh, So on the one hand, you have the need to pacify and keep uh, unaware the entire population of two million people and on the other hand, you need to hide this example that represents a threat and a challenge to the status quo. Because most billionaires and millionaires wouldn't be such if they weren't exploiting the wealth of poor people on the ground. You know, Jackie, I love what Mr. Conway is saying here when he talks about how, you know, through, through that discipline and through that steadfastness, we can become like a Malcolm X or a George Jackson. And, and what he's talking about is a, is a revolutionary transformation of the self. And the reason why that's important is because this makes us better comrades in a collective struggle. And see, this to me is fundamentally different than popular concepts of uh, self-care and things, th- th- these ultimately liberal individualistic ideas of how you develop yourself, right? Because when we look at Malcolm X, here was a brother who only slept five hours a day, who ate one meal a day, and he had the ability to talk before a mass rally in Harlem and debate at the Oxford Union and be just as well understood in either place because he knew how to make it plain. But his life was ordered by discipline. You know what I mean? And so, and that's the funny thing about Malcolm X. Yeah, obviously we admire his politics, but he's just such a shining example of upright personhood. And same, and with George Jackson, you're talking about someone who was sentenced from one year to life, which just sounds, I mean, it's so, it almost sounds fake. Was sentenced to one year to life. Why? For, for allegedly stealing $70. For, and for that, and that was worth his life, according to this racist capitalist state. And then uh, when, he, when he died, you know, they found all these books. I forget the number, but you can find the list. And it's a good list. It's an amazing list. You know what I mean? And so, you know, uh, uh, I'm going I'm, to I'm kick it to you, Jackie, but just this, you know, it, it's just so important that we sort of engage in these things, really develop in ourselves and not just admire these people from afar historically as like a picture in a book or a black and white image or a documentary, but by trying to live in their example while practicing their politics makes us not only better individuals, but can strengthen our movements. And I mean, I, I cannot agree with that more because the more I learn about the people and the politics, not, not, not even necessarily the people, but, but, but make no mistake, George Jackson is, if you read Blood in My Eye, if you have not participated in Black August reading yet, folks, it's August 12th. You still got time. It's not like nobody's going to make you stop, if, you know, on, on the, you know, at the end of August, but you have got to read Blood in My Eye to understand that this was a young brother who had his life taken 
his freedom taken. He was locked up over some foolish charge because he was basically because he was a poor, he was a poor brother, you know, and, and instead of despairing, he disciplined himself to peep this system. He peeped the whole game and blood in my eye is one non-college educated locked down young brother from the streets laying out what this system is from top to bottom. And when you do that, when you, when you pour that kind of knowledge of this system into yourself and, and you do develop the discipline to learn more because I'm not going to sit here and lie and say, like, I enjoy learning how horrible this country and the system is. It's incredibly depressing. The trauma that you have to constantly subject yourself to in reading through the history and learning this stuff. Yeah, it's really difficult, but you must discipline yourself to continue on in the struggle to make yourself better. Because once you realize just a little bit of what is really going on, it ceases to become about you. You realize that it's not just you. It is everyone around you. It's your mama. It's your daddy. It's your cousins and, and you know, and your uncles and them. Everybody is a victim of this system. And that is something that I think George Jackson uh, conveyed so beautifully and so incredibly urgently in blood in my eye. So that when I when when I get to the quote, and it really is my favorite, favorite quote, and it was Abdus's too, and it became our like like theme. Settle your quarrels. Come together. Understand the reality of our situation. Understand that fascism is already here, that people are already dying who could be saved, that generations more will live poor, butchered, half-lives if you fail to act. Do what must be done. Discover your humanity and your love and revolution. You can't know what this system is and just go on and say, well, that sucks if, if you have any love for humanity. And, and, and I just feel like that is the, for me, Eddie, that's like the personal importance of George Jackson and what he, what he symbolizes. For some of us, it is his work and his life is how we discover that we love humanity. And that's why we become quote unquote revolutionaries, because we recognize, oh, my God, this system is killing us all. And we we love humanity. We love other people too much to sit idly by and let it happen without a fight. I, I, I would want to add something, uh, take advantage of this opportunity. Monday on uh the Real News Network, uh, under Rattling the Bars, we are actually doing a program on George Jackson, and there is a list of 99 books that's included uh, that they found in his cell. Uh, but uh, Claude uh, Marx and myself, from Claude Marx from Freedom Archives and myself, uh, looked at George Jackson and looked at his history and talks about it. So there'll be a program Monday on on uh, the Real News Network. So I think that's important. Uh, and it is important to understand that it's up to us. We need to, you know, I mean, we, we're constantly, and this is why I made the point about South Africa. We're constantly 
fighting the divisions down on the ground and we're not looking at who's manipulating and who's controlling the resources that's causing us to fight on the ground to fight each other uh, when the reality is that we are in a position if we organize and unify to straighten this stuff out, we could fix this stuff. We could save the planet. We could save ourselves. It's gonna, it's gonna cost. And 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 I'll, I'll actually make a point. When 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 Mandela got out of jail, I was still in jail. But when Mandela got out of jail, I said, okay, he needed to make that deal. He needed to make an agreement so that the Zulus and the uh, black Africans wouldn't end up in a civil war that would last for 25 years, uh, uh, which is what the uh, white South Africans were pushing for, which is what the state of Israel was pushing for. They were training uh, Bucciolelli's uh, 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 Zulu warriors. Uh, they were attacking the ANC. And so I basically said, okay, Make a deal, you know, and then once you get the political power, take over and move forward. But now, 25 years later, I see that I made a mistake. I miscalculated that because I said, if they go to war, they're going to fight each other for 25 years. It's going to be horrible. Africans are going to be killing Africans and it's just going to it's going to collapse the economy, collapse the country. Well, 25 years later, the economy has collapsed. The, the warfare is low-intensity warfare. Uh, blacks are killing blacks. Blacks are killing Indians. Whites are killing blacks and Indians, most likely. And 25 years later, the, the casualty count is there. And maybe, uh, like maybe Dr. John Henry Clark or somebody else said, maybe they should have went on and took it to the mat and got it over with, uh, and at least gain control of those resources. I don't know, but until we until we decide that we're fighting a different enemy and that enemy is not us, we're gonna have this problem. And I think George, as uh, Jackie, as you quoted, said, "Settle your differences. Look at what's going on, and unify, because." Lives are being lost that could be saved. Yeah, you know, and what, what George Jackson is describing there and what you're talking about, Mr. Conway, is, is really a, a critical notion of unity. People talk all the time about unity, particularly in black America, like, oh, why, why can't black folks get together? Why can't we have unity? Well, people have this idea of unity, like we're all going to get together and agree on every single solitary thing all of the time and just completely be in lockstep. Well, that's not always possible. I would say it's often not possible, but there is such a thing as, uh, and not just because of black folks, just because of the nature of these relationships between organizations. But the, the, the thing is about having a broad-based unity of understanding when you come together for a common goal and, and a common purpose and being able to highlight where it is you agree and being able to not deny where you disagree, but to subvert it to put it on the back burner, if you will, to understand that in this moment, that is not the most important thing. It is not the primary contradiction that is facing us. And I really appreciate when we started out, Mr. Conway, about how, you know, you talked about starting it on a high note of people organizing. 
because, you know, and I don't think it's any coincidence that whether we're talking about prison organizing or organizing around climate change or, you know, organizing around the eviction moratorium and trying to get the rents canceled and all these sorts of things or, or for health care for all or all of these things. The only real hope is in struggle. There is no hope in this capitalist system. There is no hope in the bourgeois electoral system, whether you decide to engage in it or not. Ultimately, that's not like the key to liberation. There is no hope in the Democrats, the Republicans, this Congress of millionaires that we have. Sure, there may be certain ways that uh, the system could be engaged with to uh, eke out certain concessions from the ruling class. But whether you're talking about a kind of progressive reform or whether you're talking about revolution, you won't achieve any of that. You won't be able to get a street clean if you're not organized. And that, to me, Mr. Conway, is the essential thing. And it's true throughout our history. If we look at the abolition of slavery, if we look at Reconstruction, if we look at the Civil Rights Movement, the Black Power Movement, all of uh, the, 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 the struggles that collectively comprise the Black liberation struggle, whatever progress we were able to make and whatever contributions we were able to make, we were only able to do so through a collective effort. And so that, to me, really feels like the essential thing and something that we should really carry with us, not just in Black August, but all the time. Yeah, no, I agree with you. You know, um, and, um, and, and it is important to recognize that, yeah, there are going to be contradictions among us. There's always going to be contradictions down on the ground. But we have to figure out what's priority, what's important, you know. Uh, and as you say, uh, we can spend our time arguing with each other about stuff that's not necessarily that important and can't be resolved right now anyway. Or we could spend our time and our energy organizing down on the ground around the issues that we know are impacting our lives and the lives of our children and our grandchildren, if you're that old. Um, and, uh, and so we have, to do, we have to be focused with what we're doing. And uh, uh, that's, that's an important piece of this whole thing, because the struggle will continue. That's a fact. And I think that's what we really have to bear in mind, Jackie, is that either the struggle will continue or we will resign ourselves to destruction. And that's not an exaggeration. When we see how the climate is advancing, when we see how the state is responding to all efforts to try to resist it, we really only have one choice, and that is to struggle. And see, this is a clarity that I think we need to have, right? And it's so easy in this time with so much going on and so much going wrong to become complacent in discouragement and to say, well, what's the point? It's just going to do what it does anyway. The world's just going to burn up or the state is just going to come and crush us all. So why even try it? The ruling class is banking on that. That is precisely what they want. They want you to become so discouraged that you don't even consider resisting. This is how they win. But see, and I've said this a million times on the show, probably say it a million more. We don't have the money and control of institutions and all of that that the ruling class has, but our sharpest weapon is organization itself. That's the way it always been. 
That's the way it is right now. And so it's incumbent upon organizers to be able to help people see this, which isn't always an easy task. I actually find that raising consciousness is some of the hardest work. Why? Because there is an entire apparatus that propagandizes us from the time that we're old enough to understand anything. The images, the messages we get on television and radio and advertising and through pop culture and all these sorts of things. It runs counter oftentimes to the politics of struggle and to the activity of struggle and just tells you to consume, consume, consume money, women, sensation, material things. It it encourages you to only chase that instead of chasing your own freedom, which is only natural because all of these things are not ran by revolutionaries. They're ran by the ruling class. They're ran by corporations, the wealthy, these millionaires, these billionaires, these people whose personal wealth is built off of the exploitation of other workers. And I don't know if you have anything you wanted to add in our uh, last couple of minutes here, Jackie, but I just feel like those sorts of things are important to keep in mind. Yeah, I mean, they are important. And what you were just saying about the way we are indoctrinated toward consumerism and you know, feeding our sensations and and escapism. You notice how they're all individualistic activities. They're all based on how you feel, making you feel good and, you know, that kind of thing. But when your consciousness is raised, it's difficult for you to feel good when you realize that folks around you do not, that everyone else is suffering. So it's hard for you to be comfortable and to chase uh, sensationalism and and just buy things when you know that people are not free. Liberation doesn't happen just for you. You you don't want it just for you. You realize that uh, unless unless the least of us is free, none of us is free. So you know that that is absolutely something that I think we need to keep in mind. And I would like to remind people that, you know, all of the people that we talk about on this show, George Jackson and and Malcolm X and the people that we're honored to have on the show, Eddie Conway, what they never did was say that we need to unite with reactionaries in order to pursue unity. We, We don't have to have conversations with people who have made clear that they're not concerned with our liberation, let alone our well-being as human beings. So, so we don't need to platform these people, have conversations with them in order for us to settle our quarrels and come together and fight for each other. Absolutely. We're going to leave it there for today here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I want to thank Mr. Marshall Eddie Conway so much for joining us today. We'll be back tomorrow with an all-new episode. So as always, we'll see you next time. Peace. By Any Means Necessary.